Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have a lot going on. We have... Uh, Michael Botticelli, the former drug czar in the Obama administration who led all of the work around their drug policy. We also have some of the cast and the director of the new incredible film, Crown Heights. We have Namdi Asamoa, who is both in the film and produced it. We have Matt Ruskin, who is a director. And we have Colin Warner, who the film is about. And we also have Randall Woodfin, who's running to be the next mayor of Birmingham. And as usual, it's the news with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam. Now, before we jump in, I'm reminded that proximity is a key characteristic of the most effective leaders, activists, and organizers. That you have to be close to the work and close to the people that you say you serve if you want to be effective. I recently came from a visit at the Cook County Jail, the largest single site jail in the country. And I say that because it was one of the ways that I've tried to be closer to this work around mass incarceration in my own space. As we work to decarcerate, as we work to end mass incarceration across the country, I realized that I actually hadn't seen the inside of a jail before. So I went to Angola in Louisiana. I've been to Cook County Jail, and it's helped change the way that I think about how systems and structures impact people. So my question to you, my push to you, is how close are you to the work? How close are you to the people that you think you say you serve? You need to be as close as you possibly can be so that you can do your best work. Let's get to it. And now, the conversation with some of the cast and the director of Crown Heights. We have Matt Ruskin, who directed the film. We also have Namdi Asamwa, who was in the film and produced it. And we have Colin Warner, who the film is about. Now, Crown Heights comes out uh, in the first week in September. It is a film about a wrongful conviction, and I don't want to give too much away, but it is uh, such a good look at the human side of so much of the work about mass incarceration that we talk about. Here's our conversation. Well, uh, you Crown Heights uh, people, thank you so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Let us let you guys do introductions first so that everybody will know who you guys are. My name is Matt Ruskin. I uh, directed the film. Uh, Namdi Asamoa. I'm an actor in the film. Also produced the film. Colin Warner. Film is about me. <laughs> that is real. Right. So uh, by the time you hear this, the the movie will be out in some theaters across the country for sure. You should definitely see it. I've seen a lot of movies about criminal justice, a lot of movies about mass incarceration. And this one that really touched me, I cried at this part of the movie that I will not give away, but it's towards the end. And we're doing a whole project around uh, this moment just because I was so moved by it. But I'll start with you, Namdi. What led you to to produce this? Why was this story important to you? Um, it, it, It became important for many reasons. The first reason was I just wanted to work. So the the project came in, in the form of a five minute documentary that Matt made and he, you know, he was sending it around and it made its way to me um, and I was blown away by the documentary. So I, I basically asked him for the script, um, asked him if I could audition um, and he let me audition and I got the part and uh, 
But over time, as I got further and further into the story, it really just connected to me in some of the craziest ways. This is the story about Colin Warner, um, a man from Brooklyn who is wrongfully convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Uh, and it's also the story of his friend Carl King, who uh, basically devotes his life to proving Colin's innocence. Um, you know, and you see throughout the film, you see Carl sort of galvanize a community along with um, Colin's wife, Antoinette, just to just to right the wrong. And Matt, how did you find this story in the first place? Yeah, um, so... I was uh, trying to direct my first narrative film and it was just taking forever. And finally, um, I pulled together like $50,000 and just set a date on a calendar and shot a tiny little movie up in Boston with some friends of mine. And I kind of left that process realizing like there's no such thing as a quick, easy little movie. And whatever I did next, I really wanted to care about the material. And when I was driving home from that shoot, I was listening to This American Life on the radio and they did a full hour about Colin and Carl's story. And I was just I was completely blown away by the guys. And I thought, you know, this would definitely make an extraordinary film. And Colin you've had uh, an incredible life in so many ways and um, I'd love to just start with what is it like to see this film about your story and about an incredible friendship a friend that that wouldn't give up about a partner that uh, stuck by your side and about um, and about a story of delayed justice what what is it like to see this film now this whole experience is somewhat unbelievable I equate my experience of doing 21 years in prison to being buried alive for no reason. I was snatched away and I was buried alive for 21 years and for some reason they decided, me to, dig, they decided to dig me up and right now I am on their shoulders. Right, so a line between famous and infamy I'm not sure what, what, what part of that line I, I am on. But my my duty and my program today is to just try to live beyond that experience and try to make that experience mean something more than just the taking away of somebody's life. Right? So in that context... Yes, I like this movie to be seen. To be seen because that is my cry for 21 years and plus, 27 years, to be seen and to be heard, right? Because a lot of us have issues, maybe the same type of issues, but there is no connection with other people to do something. So even in this movie, the... um. The behavior of Carl King, who I did not know what he had in him. He showed me to the point where I am wondering, is this for real? Is this for real what this this human being is doing for me? And if it's real, what did I do to encourage this, this behavior, right? And I have no answers yet. I will say, you know, it was, um, and I, in, in reflection, I have to ask myself why I doubted, but I was like, you know, 
you know, I was like, oh, I got it. Friendship, da da da. And then I was like, you know, there's this moment in the movie where your character, like, he has doubt. And I'm like, Carl's just gonna, like, say that he tried and it just, like, you know, he couldn't <laughs> right. make it right. That, like, right. that somebody else is gonna come in and, like, sort of take us through the final wave and, like, Carl stuck it out. Namdi, what was it like to, you play, uh, you play the character. What mm. was it like for you to, to be the friend who, like, was there, you know? Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a challenge early on because I was I tried to get into Carl's head to see what would make him take on something this big, and you know he doesn't give you that much, you know. So I had to talk to friends and family, and you know they would talk about how big his heart is and him being the type of person that when he starts something, you know, he's got to finish it and all that type of stuff. So that gave me a little insight, but I had to look back at myself and my life to really be able to channel, um, you know, the experience. And when I was a kid, between the ages of 13 and 16, I was arrested twice, both times, for things I didn't do. Hmm. Um, you know, and it stayed with me. Where? In Los Angeles, where I grew up. Um, and it, it stayed with me. And, uh, you know, obviously, I, you know, I only spent a day in a holding cell both times. So it was it, nothing compared to what Colin went through. But... Um, you know, those things are difficult to, to get rid of from your brain and from your body. And, you know, when the project came and I, and I just started digging into it, I started thinking, oh, maybe this is an opportunity for me to have a voice, voice on this issue and to, um, you know, just maybe bring some healing to myself as well as Colin and, and others that have been through. So I was able to channel that a lot more than anything that Carl went through, you know, so that that then give, gave me a reason to get Colin out of prison in the film. Colin, one of the, um, uh, you know, I won't, I will never forget. I remember um, the moment that I cried and this is like, right. Uh, like immediately it was like towards the end. And then I wrote to the email and, and it, was, it was the moment that you found out that you were going to get out of jail. And like, I don't know how true that moment was to what actually happened, but uh, you know, it was just this, for me, it was this moment of like, you get to be free again when you had like given up or in the movie, your character had given up. Um, and it was so powerful to see like that hope come back. Like you, you, the character, you see that hope. What was that moment like for you when you realized like, I'm actually getting out? First, I didn't know I was going to get released from prison only the night before. I had, um, Filed some papers in the court, but there was I had a I had a um a March court date hearing, so my my mind at that time was just to wait for this court date in March, but I also had a parole board hearing in February, which would would be my fourth. Wow! So all these things are going on, and then I called my wife on January thirty first. I can get her on the line. So I call her next friend and tell her to call her, ease up the line. And then I, when I call again, that's when she told me she's coming to get me tomorrow. I say what? Mind you, at that time, they were, the movie Hurricane was playing. Oh, it's the same time. That's yeah. right. That's right. In the jail, I refused to watch that movie. Mm-hmm. Why? Because for some reason, I know it would have connected with me. Mm-hmm. from just hearing the story. So I stayed in my cube and that's why I went on the phone. Right? But 
most of this whole experience has been like out, out of body experience mm -hmm. because you just turn a switch and you just okay you can go now mm. right and when somebody tell you listen the last 21 years of your life it doesn't count in my eyes mm. so where does that leave you yeah right Namdi and Matt, uh, you know, I, I want to believe that in the in the process of putting this film together, that you learned more about the criminal justice system than you knew on the front end. That so many of us have seen movies or read articles, but there's something different about trying to tell somebody's story authentically and and then trying to re, you know you you recreated a, a prison, you know, and like recreated a uh, the apparatus of criminal justice. I'd love to know um, what you learned or like what are the things that stand out to you about how the system operates now that you have gone through this experience. Yeah, I mean there's a couple things that 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 came up um we, you know we we read Michelle Alexander's book The New Jim Crow which is sort of the definitive work on mass incarceration in America and that is just full of you know unbelievable statistics. Mm -hmm. Um and you know we included Bill Clinton in the film. Um we have a bunch of different presidents and sort of their their stance on crime. And, and she really said it was this watershed moment when there was a Democrat in office and he passed a crime bill and basically just continued running with, uh, you know, this um, quote unquote war on crime that um, his pre Republican predecessors had put in place. Um, and in, I know you love statistics. There's an incredible um, piece of data in her book where she said that under the Clinton administration, um, they cut public housing funding by 17 billion, which was about 60% of the budget. And they increased prison spending by something like 19 billion, which was, you know, 170% increase. And so the connection she drew was that basically their plan for low income housing in America was a massive prison expansion. Um, but, you know, anecdotally, one of the things that really blew me away when we were scouting locations in Brooklyn, um, we were, you know, all over the place outside of Crown Heights. And I would tell people what we were doing and what the film was about. And I swear, like everybody would be like, oh, I heard it about that mm -hmm. guy. And then they would mm -hmm. describe a different case. Right. And wow. it just kind right. of, it just brought home to me wow. how common this is, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, I guess for me, it's kind of the same thing. It was just through a lot of research. Um, Michelle Alexander was extremely helpful. So was Brian Stevenson. Um, who wrote Just Mercy. Um, and then even just through the process when things like uh, films like The 13th came out, you know, and I just wasn't, I never put it together in that way. I wasn't connecting the dots. But when, you know, Ava was able to, to argue um, or not even to argue, to state that slavery really didn't end in 1865, that it just evolved and the way she was able to connect the dots. These are, these are things that I hadn't really thought about before, you know, and um, I was watching Charlie Rose and Brian Stevenson was on, and this is when I was uh, preparing for the role, and, and Brian said something like, which we all know, he said um, that there's uh, an assumption of dangerousness and guilt that's assigned to black and brown people that we just in, in in this country we just really haven't we haven't healed from it you know so it's 
it's now sustained and, and, and it sort of reinvents itself in different ways when you talk about things like whether it's lynchings or segregation or Colin's story. You know, so all of this stuff was new for me because I just didn't, I was playing football, you know, I'm like, this is, this was my life, you know what I mean? And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm checking out the news, but I never really went in depth the way that I went when, when I had to prepare for the role. And why, you know, you are a, you're an actor, you're a former professional athlete, you're a parent and a husband and a black man. How do those things come together to, to influence the way you think about the need to change the criminal justice system? Well, I've been through it. You know, like I explained earlier, being being arrested and both, you know, one of the times was, um, you know, what we would call driving while black. You, know what I mean? you got arrested like, because of that? I got arrested. I was driving. I was in L.A. and I was driving uh, my mom's car, which was like a 97, 6 or 97 Maxima or something, 95 Maxima. And I'm driving around. And I, I noticed that the cop is behind me and, you know, we've all we've been through it before. And so in your head, it's like, OK, please just don't mess. I've, I've got everything. I've checked out everything. I've turned my music down. I'm just going. <laughs> right, you're I'm, like, I'm speed limit. Everything, right? <laughs> everything is perfect. Right. Sitting up straight. Um, and so finally I make a turn. He pulls me over and I'm like, OK, all right. Well, I've got everything. I know not to reach um, quickly for anything. So he comes to, to the door and he says, um, whose car is this and I said it's my mom's car you know I'm just this kid I don't know anything it's my mom's car and he says uh, well you don't look like the type of guy that should be driving this type of car wow okay so he said "Um, let me do it let me run a check so he goes back to his car and he sees that the car is actually um, it's actually licensed to my mom's uh, business so it's not her name, but it's the business on it. And so... You're like, oh, my God. I know. He How come, old are you? And I'm 16. Okay. And he comes back to the car, and he says, this car is stolen. It's not registered to, to the name that you gave me. You stole this car. And I'm arguing with him, saying I didn't. So he get, gets me out of the car, puts me in handcuffs, calls his backup, tells his backup I stole the car, puts me in his car, tells me I'm arrested. We go down to the uh, to the station. I'm in a holding cell for the entire day for something that I ha- I did not do. I didn't steal this car. Obviously, then after that we fought and 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 we ended up winning in the court of law. And you know he lost his his job. But I can was, only imagine your mom being pissed. You know my sister was even more pissed because my mom. Is your sister older or younger? My sister's older, but my mom was my mom was born in Nigeria. So she had come, you know, to America maybe 15 years prior. So she knew a little bit, but it didn't register as much as it did for my sister who was born in Texas. Okay. And she's the one. The only reason we fought was because she said, we need to fight this. Like, this is clearly... What's her name? Um, Chisara. Cool. This is clearly um, racially motivated. So anyway, uh, b- just bringing that back to this assumption of guilt, like you are guilty, you know, just because of the way you look. And it, so, you know, I, I went through a, a lot with that. Are there any misconceptions about prison that you, now that you are not in prison, that you've heard people talk about jail and prison and you're like, that's not actually what happens? Like, that's not how it is? Are there any misconceptions? Well, you have you have the TV version and sometimes that is even hard to get rid of when you tell somebody 
the so-called truth. What's the difference between the, the what your truth was and the TV version? Listen, all is not is not a show. That's the whole thing. It's not a show. It's life and death. It's life in the cell doors open in the morning and somebody murdered somebody because they didn't want to give them a a sexual magazine. That's the reality. Right? So, again, a lot of this is thrown our way to not let us look to see if that's the real problem. Oh, you go to prison. You have a good time. Five years, ain't none. Right? We look at five years like it's Two months. Ten years. I could do ten years. Is, 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 is like a year. So the whole concept is just thrown out of whack. Right? The, the unnatural becomes natural in our eyes. And once that becomes that, listen, we have to fight and fight and fight the claw back to, to see some daylight. And Matt, was it was it hard to uh, was it hard to get this film made or produced? Like, uh, what does that look like? I think that there's been such a conversation about uh, Hollywood and the stories that do get told, the stories that don't get told. Uh, what was that like for you? Yeah, no, I mean it's definitely a challenge. Um, there, I think there's even since we made the film, there's been a lot more value placed on diversity and casting. So that's always an issue. And then just finding you know the handful of people who want to make films that have you know some value beyond entertainment um i'll say the flip side is that when you know when we did get the movie together it brought together a really incredible group of people who were there um not just because of the job but because they really believed this was a story that should be told now what you know in this moment there are um there's so much upheaval there there feels like so much is at stake uh, in so many areas whether it's criminal justice the environment like you know everything feels up at stake and we see uh, artists like you um using your platform and your resources and your influence to push stories that often aren't told uh, what do you think the artist's responsibility is in moments like this um, to do just that, to to let your voice be heard in whatever platform you have. Like some people, it's for me that this the activism has come has come through art, um, through films like this. But you know, I don't. You could be uh, uh, someone that does spoken word. You know, you could be uh, a painter. You could be, you know, someone that actually can call. You know, state legislature. Like you can. There are many different avenues, but having your voice heard, I think, is the most important thing. I was talking with a man, uh, Shaka Sangor. Um, do you know Shaka? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he's been uh, to to hell and back through his story of uh, being incarcerated. And you know, when I was talking to him, he just said, "I'm just so happy that this is coming out." Because the conversation needs to be added to, like you, it, you always need to add to the conversation. Eventually, action is going to happen, but using your voice to add to the conversation is probably the most important thing you can do. Well, thank you, everybody, for thank coming you for uh, having us yeah. to come and pod save the people. Consider you all friends of the pod, uh, listeners. Make sure that you go see Crown Heights. I'm a Crown Heights super fan. It is great. <laughs> uh, I want to know if you cry when I cry, so I can't give it away <laughs> at this moment. But I'm sure we'll talk about it on Twitter. Thank y'all. Thank, thank you. you. Thank cool. you. Don't go anywhere. More pod save the people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. With BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now my conversation with Michael Botticelli, the former drug czar for the Obama administration. He served from 2014 to 2017 and his formal title was the director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. So I know you because you were the Obama drugs are from 14 to 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually didn't meet when I, I don't think we didn't meet when I was at the White House, do we? I don't think so. I don't think so we did. But you didn't start there. So where did you, how did you get to be in that role in the Obama administration? So um, my, my work uh, in drug policy and in substance use services actually stemmed from my own uh, journey. Um, I've been in recovery from addiction for over 28 years. And like many people, um, got into this field as a result of my own uh, personal journey, and um, with it, you know, an overwhelming sense of, uh, of of gratitude and kind of giving back um, uh, t- to what I uh, what what I feel very fortunate to have received. So, um, you know, I, I'm still, uh, you know, 28 years later, um, and. That some of that journey uh, took me to the White House as President Obama's uh, drug policy director. 
So what is the what is the opioid crisis? So many of us have we have read a lot of articles that say that there's a crisis. We've seen it on TV, but I haven't really heard anybody just explain like what what is what is the crisis and what, what's new about it. Uh, can you help us understand that? Sure. So, so the opioid crisis, so the opioid epidemic, is is really a combination of the dramatic increase in the number of people in the United States who are addicted to both powerful pain medications um, and illicit opioids like heroin. So it's estimated that about 2 million people in the United States are uh, have an addiction to either prescription pain medication or heroin in the United States. And we've also seen a, a huge increase in the number of overdose deaths associated with both prescription drugs and, uh, and heroin, uh, so much so that in, um, in uh, 2015, the last year that we have complete national data, we have about 33,000 people dying in the United States of a, of a drug overdose. And th- those deaths exceed the numbers of deaths from car crashes and even HIV at their peak. So by every criteria, it meets the definition of of epidemic. What is an opioid? So opioids generally fall into two uh, classes. Um, The first are legally prescribed opioids, right? What we consider um, pain medication. So those are things like Oxycontin and Vicodin and Percocet. Those are, you know, are often... um, prescribed medications given to people for both acute and chronic pain. Um, And then there are the illicit opioids like heroin um, that uh, we know uh, is, um, you know, generally produced in other countries and uh, trafficked in our streets. And and it also includes um, these newer synthetic opioids that we are seeing on the street, like fentanyl and carfentanyl. Um, These are illicit opioids that are much, much more powerful than even heroin or morphine. But, but they generally fall into those uh, two classes of, of drugs. You know, some of the newer synthetic opioids like fentanyl and carfentanyl that we're seeing on the streets now has really been driving some of the major increases in overdose deaths. Uh, and, and while all of them are bad, um, you know, these illicit opioids, because they are so much more powerful than heroin or morphine or prescription pain medication, they, they are driving the huge increase in overdose deaths uh, in the United States. Is there actually an increase in use or is it that we are just able to measure use? So there are a lot of people who are like, you know, in in black communities and low income communities, there's always been an epidemic that the yep. that this that the epidemic, that what, I don't know what the the epidemic nature of it isn't actually new, um, but that but that suddenly either white people are implicated or the way that we are measuring it is just better or or is it literally just like an overall increase in use? It's, it, it is an overall increase in use. I mean, we, we've seen that in terms of prescription drug misuse, in terms of heroin use. Clearly, you know, overdoses, we have never seen the magnitude of overdoses like we have before. But 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 to your point, I think you know, what's, what's in some respects, I think, changed. And I, I, I think it's fair to say kind of brought um, kind of more attention to this. And certainly 
I think a much more public health focus to this is the fact that it's um, been uh, affecting uh, largely uh, white communities in many parts of the United States. And I think that that has, you know, in some respects, uh, spurred a, uh, a, a different response to this epidemic than we have had to other epidemics in our communities, the, you know, like, like the crack epidemic, where we saw largely, you know, affecting uh, African-American communities and was basically dealt with by uh, criminal justice response that we, you know, basically threw everybody in jail. So one of the things that I thought that I believe to be true, but totally pushed me is that one of the, so like when we think about crack and cocaine, which is not an opioid, uh, that people tend to just not live as long when they're addicted to that, but people can be like functional users of opioids for longer. Is that true? Uh, um, you know, it generally is true. Uh, you know, you can, you can be a long time, uh, you can be someone who's addicted to heroin for a long time. Um, I think, you know, the, the challenges that, that many people who are, uh, uh, you know, addicted to heroin die of other consequences, um, viral hepatitis, um, mm. HIV, endocarditis. Um, but heroin in and of itself, you, you can actually be, and I've actually talked with folks who've been addicted to heroin for a very long time. How would you describe access to treatment and the number of people or percentage of people who are currently in treatment for addiction, either overall or for opioids specifically? Access to treatment has been a historic problem. Uh, when you look at national data, only about 10% of people who have a diagnosable substance use disorder actually get care and treatment. And, you know, just to give some perspective, about 75% of people with diabetes get treatment, but only about 10% of people with addiction uh, get uh, care and treatment. And uh, uh, part of the strategy for the Obama administration was to dramatically increase not only insurance coverage, um, but also access to treatment, and particularly access to treatment in parts of the country that have uh, been historically underserved. So the other day I uh, talked about methadone clinics and residential treatment and outpatient treatment as a set of options. Um, but can you help us understand what are, what's like the full range of options for treatment or recovery from addiction? Sure. So, so one of the, you know, one of the kind of premier principles of treatment um, is that this is a chronic disease and people need to be engaged in treatment for a significant period of time in, in order to reach long-term recovery. Um, I think it's important, particularly with the opioid epidemic, that we understand that medications, methadone, buprenorphine, uh, uh, injectable naltrexone, which are three um, evaluated medications, are highly effective uh, for the treatment of people uh, who are addicted to opioids. Now, people need all the other supports that go along with it, therapy, community-based uh, supports. But, but the evidence is pretty clear that people who are on medications who get these other supports do far better than people who don't get medications. Now, you know, when I was running for mayor in Baltimore, I met with so many uh, policy experts and so many people dealing with the work of addiction and recovery in the city. And one of the things that I heard from advocates was that methadone clinics um, weren't actually it. One of the things that I heard was uh, there was a concern about methadone clinics that people have sort of over indexed on methadone as being sort of a one all uh, 
one size fits all sort of solution and that so many of the people who are using methadone either don't uh, actually recover in the end or supplement. Like one of the things I heard often in Baltimore was that people were supplementing uh, methadone with like Coke, for instance, right? Like that they were that they were using other forms of uh, drugs while using methadone or they'd be on methadone for like a decade uh, and, and never actually transition off. Mm-hmm. What's your, can you just help me understand that you are as a policy expert? Sure. So, um, you know, I, I've heard this before uh, around medications, um, that, you know, in some respects, it's just substituting one drug for another and that people who are on medications are not kind of firmly in recovery. And, you know, the way that I talk about, I compare it to other diseases, right? So if you're a diabetic and you need insulin and you need insulin for the rest of your life, you know, we we don't um, basically tell people, well, you know, at some point you really need to transition off of insulin. And, you know, but unfortunately, methadone, methadone gets a really bad rap. I think in in terms of of one um, uh, again, it's you know probably one of the most um, uh, uh, best evaluated drugs that we have in terms of p- uh, treatment for opioid addiction. But but I think sometimes we often point to its failures, um, and no drug is 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 perfect um, as 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 a way to kind of diminish the effectiveness of methadone, but it is one of the most highly effective medications that we have uh, for these drugs. And if people need to be on them, uh, people need to be on them for as long as they need to be on them. And I know that sounds rather flip, but, but, but it's really true that if people need to be on them for the rest of their life in order to, uh, you know, in order to maintain a healthier lifestyle, then, then that those decisions should really be a function of the, the doctor and the patient. Now, uh, the, Trump recently has declared the opioid crisis uh, an emergency, what did he, a state of emergency. What does that mean? Or like, what, what, what do we think that that will result in? What does, what do we think that means? So while I think it's helpful to call attention um, to the epidemic by declaring it an emergency, I think the true test is going to be what resources or what actions come from it. Um, And uh, I actually do find it somewhat um, ironic that um, the president would simultaneously declare a, um, an emergency at the same time that he's still calling for the repeal and replacement of the affordable care act. Um, you know, we have seen, you know, as we were talking about, too few people get treatment. And one of the main reasons that they are not able to get treatment is insurance. And we've seen the dramatic role that the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion has played in um, helping people to get treatment for their disease. And do we know any of the demographic information about who who's in treatment or who isn't? Is it like are, uh, are, are women overrepresented or underrepresented men, like by race? Um, so, so historically, um, like you know, like access to healthcare for uh, for uh, many people that we see, you know, historic underrepresentation of women and people of color in in treatment, um, and I think that's a function of um, again, uh, you know, uh, still. Um, and over-reliance on criminal justice response for people of color. I think it speaks to 
um, having things like gender-specific programs for women, um, having culturally competent programs uh, for people of color become really important for us to be able to start diminishing some of the disparities that we see in terms of who's impacted and who has access to care. Now, when we think about the work to be done at the local, state and federal level, what is the difference between? So for most people, it's like they're like, OK, there's a crisis and people need recovery and they should have access. Right. That's sort of like, I think, the very simplistic way that people think about this issue that I've talked to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from from a policy perspective or at the local state and federal level, like what can actually, is is it literally just a matter of like, if we give everybody health insurance, we think that more people will be in treatment or is there like something else that needs to be done and there's different work to be done at every level of the government? Can you help us understand that a little better? Sure. Uh, you know, I do think there's work that, that, um, that needs to happen at, at every level. Certainly the federal government uh, I think has a huge responsibility in terms of the overall framework around particularly healthcare and the overall policy framework. So, you know, under, under President Obama, we, we dramatically reframed uh, uh, d- uh, drug policy issues as a public health issue and not as a criminal justice issue. Uh, and, you know, understood through the work of the Attorney General and others that, you know, we could be smarter on crime as opposed to tough on crime. So the federal government, I think, has a huge role to play in how resources are directed um, and the overall focus, policy focus of those efforts are. So, you know, again, I think not only have we seen the Attorney General Sessions returning in, in some respects to a tough on crime approach and even President Trump talking about this, you know, uh, this issue that we just need to increase drug prosecutions as a way to deal with this issue. And so, so I think the federal government has an incredibly important role to play in overall policy direction and the direction of overall federal funding in response to, to those issues. But, but also states play a key role as well in terms of, of setting their own uh, agenda, both from a policy and resource perspective and how they're going to focus on this issue. You know, I'm back in Massachusetts now where this governor and uh, this state still believes that uh, people uh, deserve health care, that we need to focus our efforts of addiction on uh, a health-related response to this, and that we need to, uh, to continue to divert people away from the criminal justice system. What is something that you think you've heard in the mainstream media about the opioid crisis that that people are either misunderstanding or just have gotten wrong? So I, 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 a, a couple things that, that I think are important as, as I've seen the kind of media coverage on, on this issue. Um, one is that um, the problem is intractable and people don't get better, right? So I, I, I think there has been an overwhelming focus on um, just the tragedy of the epidemic and not as much attention that um, people actually do get better. I I was just doing a roundtable with some reporters uh, having this conversation where, um, you know, and I understand it's much more sensational um, to deal and to kind of show the, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the overdoses and the tragedy of this. But, but there are also significant numbers of people who do get better, who go on 
to um, incredibly vibrant, productive lives. Um, and, and I do think that it has not been um, uh, uh, equally portrayed um, the, um, the millions of people who are in recovery, not just from opioids, but from substance use in general, that, you know, if people are given the right care, they do get better. And who is doing this work really well across the country? Are there any bright stars that we can look to to say like, wow, you have either figured out how to engage people so that they feel more comfortable uh, with entering treatment or places that have decreased the stigma around treatment options or places where there just is a better catchment area? Like who's doing this well? Um, You know, I I, I know it sounds somewhat self-serving, but you know, I, I think people here, and I'm not just talking about Boston Medical Center, but I think people here in Boston and the larger uh, public health community here do a uh, really good job. We have, you know, a, a very expansive needle exchange program. We have a wide variety of outreach and engagement uh, services, widespread naloxone distribution. Um, here at Boston Medical Center, we have one of the largest um, uh, uh, treatment clinics um, in the city, and and uh, that treatment clinic is integrated within the regular outpatient services of the hospital. So that if you're a patient, you can walk into our clinic and be indistinguishable from any other patient who's here for any other reason. That that really diminishes some of the shame and stigma that that uh, you know that's often associated in in accessing care. Um, and we also have a wide variety of of, of recovery support services uh, uh, because we know that people need things like access to safe and stable housing um, and other kinds of supports for, for their recovery. So, you know, uh, we have a long way to go um, and there are certainly lots of gaps in, in what we do, but, uh, you know, I think the kinds of programs that we have here in, in Massachusetts um, and in Boston, I think are, are good critical components of, of the kinds of things that we should be offering as a response to this issue. Now, you talked about the sort of the legal opioids uh, being a part of what has led to the crisis. Um, what can pharmaceutical, how do we hold pharmaceutical companies accountable or hospitals or doctors or, or is that not the right question? Like, how do we think about, like, I think that, you know, it's easy to think about or it is easier for us to imagine solutions around heroin. And maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know anything about sort of the pharmaceutical industry, really, um, yep. or hospitals or, or what doctors can do differently. No, I think you're asking a really, you know, critical question that that this epidemic um, came at us um, and in large part is still being driven by the medical establishment. Um so one is, and let me start with the medical community, um, I think that every physician and every prescriber has a responsibility to take some level of continuing medical education on safe and effective opioid prescribing. You know, we are still prescribing um, at levels three times we were uh, at in 1999. And it's that overprescription of pain medication that has driven and continues in many respects to drive this epidemic. So I think prescribers have a responsibility in learning better ways to prescribe, in monitoring their prescription uh, behavior, and reducing the overall volume of prescribing. I, I think the pharmaceutical industry has a significant responsibility to play in, in ensuring that uh, um, 
they they are not contributing to the problem by mismarketing these drugs. Uh, and you know, we have seen um, states and cities pursuing legal action against the pharmaceutical industry. What's mismarketing? For, like, what does that mean? That basically that these are non-addictive medications, um, and which we, which we saw um, uh, uh, by some players in the pharmaceutical industry of, of saying that these were non-addictive drugs and physicians just could prescribe them liber- uh, liberally uh, without, without uh, any sort of addictive consequence to this. I've heard about naloxone, nalox, naloxone, is that you say? Naloxone. Which is a, which, which stops overdoses or it mm-hmm. helps save people's lives. Can you, what is, what is naloxone? Like what's, I've never heard somebody in public health talk about it. I've just like read articles that are like, there's naloxone. I know Baltimore is a city that has, has, is using it, but can you explain like what it does and why this seems to be a significant move forward with regard to saving people's lives? Sure. Uh, naloxone is a drug that has been used by first responders for a very long time to reverse people uh, who are having an overdose as a result of opioids, either prescription drugs or heroin. And the, the way that it works very sim- simplistically is it, um, it kicks off opioids uh, from the brain receptors um, so that people uh, immediately come out of their withdrawal, uh, out of their overdose. And, and what we have found, because this is a very safe uh, drug to use with a kind of little to no um, uh, bad side effects, um, is that it can be used by uh, people who are not medically trained to reverse an overdose by police and firefighters, by family members, by other drug users. And so, a, you know, a prime strategy to deal with the extraordinary numbers of overdose deaths has been to um, distribute naloxone um, to anyone who's in a position to witness an overdose. And, and we've seen, you know, some pretty dramatic results in uh, the number of overdose deaths that have been reversed by the use of, of naloxone. Where is the heroin coming from? Like I, yeah, the legal opioids makes sense. Like I, it makes sense to me, like how they're getting to people. How is heroin still getting into communities, given that like nobody in anybody's hood or farm in the rural rural parts of America are, grown, are like grown growing? Hobby. Yeah, they're just not. Yeah. And if they are growing it, they're not gro- growing it in a quantity yeah. that they can sell, you know? Yeah. M- most of the heroin that we see in the United States um, is being grown and processed in Mexico and being uh, transported into the United States. Um, you know, uh, President Trump, I, I think, would have people believe that if we just build a wall or a better wall, that we will be able to stop the flow of drugs um, coming into the United States. But I think, you know, people who've been involved in this issue for a very long time know that if you just put up one barricade, um, that traffickers will find another way to get drugs into the United States. So as long as we have kind of demand in the United States, uh, traffickers will find a way to get the drugs in. So both my parents were addicted to drugs. Um, my father raised us. My mother left when I, I was a little kid. And in so many ways, I grew mm-hmm. up in a community of recovery. Um, you know, seeing so many adults around me and adults that were incredibly close to me and raised mm-hmm. me, sort of worked through addiction. I know uh, as someone who is not addicted, I know what the stigma uh, feels mm-hmm. like 
I, I've been around people who have been stigmatizing people. Yep. Yep. Um, what work is being done on reducing the stigma with regard to treatment uh, and addiction itself? And, and where do we still have to go? Sure. So stigma still plays a huge role. When, when you look at one of the main reasons why people don't want to go to treatment, um, stigma still plays a huge role in, in keeping people from getting the care that they need. Um, and so I think that there are a couple um, main efforts. Uh, I think that will dramatically can have the opportunity to dramatically decrease stigma. One is talking about it in a much more public way, you know, and, and, and we've seen with issues like HIV or LG, LGBT rights, for example, that when people come out, um, it dramatically decreases the stigma that's attached to either people or diseases. And, and so I, it's one of the reasons why I'm public about my own recovery but, but I think why we see this kind of recovery movement in the United States being much more vocal and visible about uh, their struggles. Um, be, because if we make this personal, um, we're much more likely to change people's individual attitudes around that um, and to dramatically change public policy in, in focusing this as a health-related issue. Um, w- one of the other ways that we have, I think we know that we can decrease some of this stigma is change some of the language that we use. Um, you know, when, when we call people junkies and addicts that, you know, we, we just continue to perpetuate some of the stereotypes that we have, uh, that, um, you know, these people are bad or that they did it to themselves. So, so changing our language, actually the, the AP style book, which is the guidebook for journalists, um, around language actually just called for a number of changes in the way that the media uh, uses language around addiction. And then the last piece I'll say is that, you know, we need to continue to do a better job of integrating issues of addiction just into our, into our mainstream medical care system. Um, for, t- for too long, it has been marginalized and separated. And, and I do think that we have a tremendous opportunity to destigmatize addiction when we treat it like we do every other disease and when we incorporate that into our medical care, just like we would any other condition. Well, Michael Botticelli, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Consider your friend of the pod and hope to have you back soon. Yeah, DeRay, is really my pleasure and uh, uh, hope to meet you face-to-face someday. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. 
The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. And now the news with Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and an appointee by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing, Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith. That's Clint Smith the third. Clint Smith I I I. Clint Smith one two three. Do re mi fa so la ti. Yes. I I I. And this is Dre at Dre on Twitter. So I don't have a specific news article necessarily to share this week, but I've I've been thinking a lot about the way that. Charlottesville has been covered, and I've seen a lot of folks online and on the news talking about it. And I've been struggling with this rhetoric that I've been seeing online, again, on the news and elsewhere, uh, about how this moment is seemingly no different than what's been happening all around us and thus bears no distinction. And for me, I can, we think, you know, recognize that this is that racism has a historical precedent and is a central organizing feature in American politics without pushing out these false equivalencies. And so for me, it like is different and is uniquely different that neo-Nazis and Klan members are marching in the open in large numbers in the year 2017. It is different that the president of the United States is fueling a movement predicated on hate by not unequivocally condemning them. It is different that white supremacists are holding press conferences that get national conferences, national coverage. Uh, and so there, you know, we always talk about this iconography of hate and bigotry. And I think there are different spectrums along that iconography. And I think the way that hate is externally manifested and performed matters a lot. And I think the language matters a lot because the rhetoric of the quote, like this is the same is a different way of saying that we haven't made any progress. And, and I think to say that is both intellectually and morally disingenuous. <clears throat> uh, does that mean redlining isn't a problem? Does that mean mass incarceration isn't a problem? Does that mean food insecurity isn't a problem or job discrimination and stratification of intergenerational wealth aren't problems? Of course not. But sometimes I think we conflate what is progress for what is the sort of proverbial promised land and what freedom is in ways that are really unhelpful. And I think you, you, we can bring this back to the election and not to sort of relitigate that whole thing, but, you know, the rhetoric that was sort of underlying a lot of the the online community and uh, and elsewhere is that, you know, well, Trump and Hillary are basically the same and uh, both are running on platforms of uh, anti-blackness or neoliberalism, et cetera. And I think you can and should have critiques about Hillary Clinton. And again, not to go back and, and do all that again, but uh, but to say they are the same and to say things like that are the same ignores like real damage and violence that's being done to people right now as a result of this pregnancy and the families that are being deported and the communities with the food stamps threatening to be cut and children in public schools who are threatening to have the the very sort of fabric of that social institution ripped apart. And so I say all this to say that I think distinctions are important. I think it is different that my son 
was born into and exists in a world where the leader of the free world is tacitly affirming neo-Nazis and white supremacists in a way that is not the same as it was before, right? And I think that when we suggest otherwise, it almost compromises our commitment to building a better world because we're not able to properly diagnose the world as it exists today. I agree with that. And I think it is sort of a a both and, right? I think it is not only are the Klansmen out in the streets and, you know, you're, you're seeing a level of sort of openly explicit white supremacist rhetoric and organizing and uh, intimidation, um, but also the systemic stuff is getting worse too, right? So when you think about uh, the trajectory of mass incarceration, uh, you know, that was actually on a trajectory where it was going down for the first time in, you know, decades. We saw the trajectory change and there being fewer people in prison uh, than the year before and the year before that. And now, you know, you're seeing because of this administration specifically rescinding us and uh, repealing some of the work that Obama had did, you're seeing those trends could very much come back up, right? You're seeing private prisons starting to be used much more readily um, than they would have been had the status quo remained from the Obama administration. And so, you know, both the explicit intimidation, individual acts of white supremacist terrorism and the systemic uh, acts of uh, white supremacy and, and systemic oppression are uh, going going up now because of a direct, con- a direct result of this administration. And this is also a really teachable moment because what you're essentially talking about is a form of invalidation, Clint. Um, if you have heard of microaggressions, um, there is a category within that called micro-invalidations. Um, so if you haven't heard of microaggressions, certainly go look them up right now. And what they are are all of the little slights that marginalized people endure every single day. So if someone looks foreign to you, asking them where they're from as if as though you assume that they're not from right here, um, um, Uh, When someone experiences um, racism or sexism, finding an excuse for why that thing happened, right? I remember being in a meeting one time where someone said something incredibly racist, and my colleague afterwards said, well, he's really old and he grew up in the South, as though what I had just experienced wasn't at all valid. And so that's a micro-invalidation. This feels like a macro-invalidation, right? We're looking at all the things happening around us and the kind of trauma that people are enduring, the kind of violence that it's reaping. to your point, Clint, by saying that it's just the same as before, invalidates us to the point that it is, as you already said, dangerous. Um, And not just dangerous in the social sense, but dangerous to those very people who are um, trying to be vulnerable and honest and identifying exactly how this moment is making them feel. You know, Charlottesville is not far from where I live. I know folks who went to and still go to UVA. um, And Charlottesville is everywhere, right? As as was demonstrated um, directly following following incidents in Charlottesville as there were lots of marches and, quote, free speech rallies um, scheduled across the entire country. And so um, invalidating it is is not only dangerous to our uh, commitment, as you said, Clint, um, for ending racism and ending systemic oppression, but it also really invalidates people in your everyday circle. So you should think before you say these kind of things. Now, Clint, what's, um, or everybody, I, I'm interested in in this in the sense that I, for so many people they would say that the world is still bad right that like we have not actually made as much progress as people would like us to believe or that you think about mass incarceration just replaced enslavement so like do we actually call that do we call that progress i think is 
is I think that's the spirit in which people are saying these things, Clint. Um, and I right, and I, I just to hop on what you said, I I hear that, and I think that that's one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot as someone who both studies the history of enslavement and studies contemporary mass incarceration. I think it is incredibly important that we recognize that both of those things are horrific. That we recognize that antebellum slavery in the mid nineteenth century was horrific and that we recognize that mass incarceration in the 21st century is horrific. But I think we can do that without saying that they are the same thing, right? Or without saying that mass incarceration is a new type of slavery because it's not, right? Like mass incarceration is a uniquely different phenomenon than slavery. And I understand why people do it. I understand. I I have done it before. I've for in in many ways because it is, uh, a way to use rhetoric and language to sort of prop up the urgency of the moment. But I actually think the more I think about it, the more I think we're doing a disservice to the nature of the work when we're not, uh, we're not having nuanced and specific conversations about like what different modes of oppression look like. And mass incarceration is simply not antebellum slavery. And that doesn't mean mass incarceration isn't bad. And that doesn't mean mass incarceration isn't an urgent problem that we should be addressing with uh, with all of the, the sort of uh, social and moral urgency that we can muster. But I think when we call everything slavery, I, th- I think that we are not being helpful in in addressing like the the very like idiosyncrasies of the problems that we're facing. And so I, I think this moment demands us being as precise as possible in the language we use and as precise as possible in the way that we diagnose the different social ills we see um, and sort of using a large overarching metaphor uh, simply is not going to help us move toward uh, the the sort of place that we need to be moving toward. So, I mean, I, I'm sort of of two minds here. I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge the progress that has been made, right? And to say that, you know, being a black person in America today is, uh, I think, unequivocally better than being a black person in the South, especially, and in America in general, and really in the 50s or in the 1850s or in the 1750s. And I think that um, it's important to acknowledge that and to uh, acknowledge the progress that's been made and the people who have risked everything to make that progress. Um and I think also, you know, thinking about when we use the term slavery, you know, in the context of the prison system, you know, thinking that we're not talking about chattel slavery. It is a different kind of compelled and forced uh, restriction and forced labor and and uh, denial and deprivation of rights. And I think, you know, slavery is a broader term than chattel slavery, right? And I think that oftentimes it does evoke in the context of, of American life and American history, it evokes that. Um, but I do think it's an accurate descriptor of how many folks um, in the conditions that many folks find themselves in, in the prison system today, but I don't think it is the same or as bad or as pervasive uh, or as um, restrictive as the shadow slavery that we saw you know, in the United States. Yeah, you know, um, in relationship to this continued conversation on Charlottesville, um, there was some interesting polling that came out this week um, 
Ameris Poll, in partnership with NPR and PBS, polled a number of adults um, about race and race relations in America. Um, the two things that really stuck out at me um, were um, a question about Confederate statues and, and their um, relevance, um, or Confederate symbols, rather, um, and how people felt about what is commonly referred to as the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's interesting because while 50% of the folks polled mostly agree um, with the uh, beliefs of their perceived beliefs of Black Lives Matter, 62% of people polled believe that uh, statues honoring leaders of the Confederacy should remain. Uh, and so it just, you know, continuing this conversation, it is always interesting to me. People know they are supposed to believe in equality, right? People know that they are generally supposed to believe in equity. And it is not to say that there has not been a ton of progress, especially in terms of how people feel about this current racial justice movement, because I'm actually surprised by how high this number is. Um, 33% of people mostly disagreed with what they perceived to be the beliefs of um, the Black Lives Matter movement. But um, you know, so we get fuzzy on the details though, right? Um, and so, you know, equity is popular. You're supposed to believe in it. It is socially unacceptable to say you do not want all people to be equal. But when we actually talk about what it means to uh, pursue the taking down of Confederate statues, and again, that doesn't mean um, erasing them from history, right? We're talking about removing them from a place of honor and relegating them only to history, which is where they should be. Uh, people get real fuzzy on that, and those numbers don't seem to match. Um, there was a, a Quinnipiac University um, poll earlier this year. I wonder if these numbers have changed, but um, nearly half of all Republicans and nearly 40% of all independents actually are no more or less concerned about violence against um, people of color um, since this administration has taken place. And so it, it just never ceases to amaze me how much we can believe and support a general concept without recognizing all of the ways in which it manifests. That's why that iceberg illustration that we talked about last week was so important. Um, and to remind ourselves that white supremacy and institutionalized and systemic racism are systems and not just individual slates. Yeah, so that was something that stuck out to me from the beginning that I had questions about is is why is, you know, it was almost one of these one of these things is not like the other type situations where, you know, why is Black Lives Matter even in the same category of of questions as the white supremacy movement, white nationalists and the Ku Klux Klan? And, you know, so much of polling operates under the pretense of uh, objectivity um, and but but it you know as you kind of alluded to like framing matters and methodology matters and when you are what what happens sort of intuitively if someone is, sees Black Lives Matter among these other well recognized well vetted hate groups is that they begin to conflate the the nature of like what all of these stand for and that they are different uh, iterations uh, and extensions of like a similar similarly like hateful. Um, nationalistic supremacist, uh, you know, outgrowth of, of sensibilities, and and so I think that's that's really interesting to to consider. Yeah, and I, I'm mindful that in in the time when King and and so many of the civil rights movement leaders, you know, were alive, is that they had not imagined that technology would allow for the amplification and 
the presence of overt racism to just show up differently. And we, you know, we obviously live in a different time. What I do think, I think you're right, that there is something about unveiling, unveiling the hate that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say that it's beneficial. I, I do think that it like reminds people of the urgency of the work and it forces them to choose a side. Like if there's any time for you to choose a side, it's now. And it's, those who won't choose a side have already chosen. And that becomes much clearer when it's like the former head of the KKK is like praising the president for equivocating or, um, or making synonymous like people fighting for justice and people promoting hate. So like, I, I do think there's a lot of work there. What I think is really interesting about these, the polling questions is people weren't very supportive of us in those early days in August of 2014. And Brittany, you know, you remember it. It's like, we asked At a lot all. of people to like, <laughs> yeah, people weren't very supportive. Uh, so if anything, I'm- In fact, I'm, they were- Outwardly hateful. Right. And I'm, I am impressed, like 50% of people supporting the movement is sort of incredible, especially because it's a decentralized space. No, no one, two or three people started it. No people, no, like one organization or two organizations or three kept it going. Like, so that to me is really uh, promising. I, I am interested in thinking about like, what could we poll differently? Like, I would love to know, uh, like, you know, have you spoken to somebody about race in the last six months? Like, those are like the interpersonal ways that race is showing up in people's lives. Like I'm really interested in that data. I think more than I'm interested in the sort of, how do you feel in the moment or even the the data that's like, how did you get to this feeling? Like, you know, who has influenced you about, like where have you been influenced about issues around race in the past year or so like those sort of things, I think are the things that we don't have, or I've not seen good data on that. I would love to see data on Sam. So for my piece of news, um, an article came out uh, from NBC that the title is Two Ex-Florida Prison Guards, Both KKK Members, Found Guilty in Murder Plot of a Black Inmate. Um, So these were two prison guards. Um, They were current prison guards at or they were prison guards at the time. And they were also active members of the Ku Klux Klan. plotting to kill uh, a a black person in prison. Um, And I bring this to the conversation because, you know, when we talk about the Klan and neo-Nazis in Charlottesville and and, and now in so many other cities, um, you know, oftentimes those conversations depict them as outside of systems um, and sort of being, you know, engaging in vigilante violence. Um, But, what what's clear here is that they're also operating inside of systems too, right? And what I have not seen, um, and I'd be curious what, what other folks' thoughts are on this, uh, what I have not seen is a thorough accounting of the extent to which they operate inside systems uh, directly, not just their beliefs, but like literally their membership. Um, and what efforts are, if any, are really being done to stop that? Um, you know, for example, uh, I know that the military has a policy um, banning uh, extremist groups uh, from serving in the military. Um, but I, to my knowledge, there is not a similar policy for police departments, for other agencies in government. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what can be done to identify these folks to prevent them from entering uh, systems where they have more power to cause more harm. Um, and how we can actually, you know, effectively stop this type of violence from happening. 
What I think is interesting about this is that this is one of those things that like people don't believe until there's data, you know? Like people have been saying this for a long time, but for a lot of people, it wasn't until this news story came out that they were like, wow, there are people in the KKK that are in prisons and like are running jails and are on the force. So Andrew Young recently made a comment that was sort of, that was in the vein of like, well, they're just poor white people and they are also sort of oppressed. And somebody thoughtfully on Twitter replied like, you know, I know KKK members that are not poor white people that are like highly educated white men, right? That like this, this, this complicating factor that they are actually operating in like a host of areas and socioeconomic statuses that this is not like just random, you know, farmers out being like, I hate black people. Like that they're actually embedded in society. And, and you see those pictures in Charlottesville. It's like, it's like young white people who work at banks and like are college freshmen. And, uh, and that is, a more realistic understanding of how insidious white supremacy functions. I was just recently watching this documentary on um, on the Nazis, and like these are these are super well educated people. These are incredibly well educated. These are folks who are at the top of the socioeconomic ladder. Um, you know, you go back to even, and we don't even have to go to Germany, right? You go back to the the early 20th century and the mid 20th century and like the people who were in the Klan and on the white citizens councils that were like, you know, the more open, less apologetic uh, version of the Klan and, the, and less apologetic in the sense that they weren't hiding their faces. They were just like at city council meetings. Um, you know, these are the people who were like business owners and people who were CEOs and people who were directors of businesses and organizations. And so, you know, I, I think it's important to like rid ourselves of the the myth that the racists are simply like these rednecks or, or economically disenfranchised folks when, um, when being well-educated or having a, a enough money does not uh, in and of itself rid you of your, your bigotry. So my news is is quick and insidious. Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, is requesting for the first time in the history of the DEA that the DEA has its own uh, prosecutors. So currently, the DEA is an enforcement agency and people are prosecuted by the U.S. attorney's offices across the country. But Jeff Sessions, who was a U.S. attorney before, thinks that the DEA needs its own prosecutors. And the fear is that he will actually be able to, if this goes through, be able to restart the war on drugs because the agency that arrests people will also be able to prosecute those crimes and bypass any other check on their authority and power, which is frightening. I mean, what is there left to say about Jeff Beauregard Sessions? You know, I think we are in a moment that has illuminated in frightening ways that we need uh, more checks and balances, especially on the executive branch. Um, and it's a power to to do things without um, going through the necessary due process, uh, both on a sort of macro and micro level. Um, and yeah, this is really frightening. And, and I, it's a story that's fallen under the radar for a lot of folks. And uh, I hope people are paying attention. And this is why I say we have to use every single tool in our toolbox because the racists will. Like, they will leave no stone unturned. They will figure out every single strategy, tactic, overt, covert, in order to rule the day and 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 continue to perpetuate supremacy. So we can't leave any stone unturned either. It is amazing to me that the supposed rationale for this, the public rationale for this, is about defeating the opioid crisis, um, which 
in and of itself is problematic, given that when an opioid crisis, as we know, um, was centered in urban centers in America and affected mostly people of color, um, this kind of attention was not at all paid. But we all know that um, this is just cover, right, for, as you've already said, perpetuating um, the the war on drugs and and deepening it. Um, And we know exactly who suffers from that particular uh, from that particular warfare. So I am I'm not surprised by this, but I am um, never surprised by the lengths that this particular DOJ and this particular attorney general will go uh, to perpetuate white supremacy. Racist be working. Yeah. They- <laughs> Racist, that's the name of the episode. Racist, Racist be, working. be working. All day, every day, in every way. Well, I think that's it. It's the news. And now my conversation with Randall Woodfin, candidate to be the next mayor of Birmingham. Randall Woodfin, who is running to be the next mayor of Birmingham, thank you so much for joining me and us today on Pot Save the People. Hey, I'm glad to be on. Thank you all for the opportunity. Now, let's talk about you for a little bit. So you and I, this is the first conversation we are ever having. I've heard a lot about you. There were some fundraisers that um, people put on that I know and I'm close to for you uh, around the country. So uh, people I trust uh, like you and are supporting you. So I wanted to have a conversation with you. Can you tell me a little bit more and tell us a little bit more about your background and why you're running for mayor? Well, the short version is I am a, a son of Birmingham. I was born and raised in Birmingham. Um, my family's from here. Um, all my extended family's from here. So, product of the Birmingham City School System and County High School, as well as more else graduates. And I finished Cumberland School of Law 10 years ago. I've been a lawyer for the city of Birmingham since 2009, as well as a school board member in an elected capacity where I served as past president between 2013 and 2015. So, being around public service, probably for the last 14 years, whole notion of being a son of the city is giving back. This is home. Now you are you are young to some people, especially in the South. Yeah, thirty six. I'm thirty six years of age. Um I would say that's definitely on the younger end. Um but I would also say um if we're treating this as a movement, um those who have come before us um as far as leadership have also been young. I mean when you look at uh, people like Abraham Woods when you look at people like Fred Shuttlesworth, um, they were somewhere between the ages of 36 and 44. And what are the biggest issues facing Birmingham today? I would say um, poverty um, is, a, is a massive issue in our city. Um, crime, particularly crimes against persons, is a is in, um, with murder with handguns is a major issue. I will also say, um, believe it or not, basic services. Um, we want to talk about infrastructure issues such as street paving and et cetera. And then you cannot forget this. Uh, education, like many urban cores across America, it's an issue here um, and it, it needs to be addressed in a different way. And why should people vote for you? It's a crowded field. There are a lot of people. There's an incumbent running too, right? The incumbent's running? There's an, inc- there's an incumbent running. There are, no, there are no term limits in the city limits of um, Birmingham. So why you? I think, one, I have a sense of urgency of helping people. Um, I think, two, I actually have a plan as it relates to those things I named. Um, and so there are a lot of people that run for office. Um, they run for selfish reasons or they run for... Um, reasons that are motivated not 
necessarily around helping people. I am asking people to vote for me because I am intentional and have a sense of urgency about improving the people's people quality of life to live in the city. Um, not just investing in our younger generation and our youth, but supporting our elders as well. Having been a city employee with the legal department since 2009, I've had a up-close view of the issues facing our city. And so there are many people in the race, and all they can tell you is the problem. All they literally can tell you is the problem. But what we bring in my candidacy and uh, giving us the opportunity to be the mayor is that we're swimming in solutions only, that we can solve and tackle issues around crime. We can invest in our youth differently. We can um, attack unemployment and figure out a way to evolve around workforce training and making sure people are employable. We're only talking about solutions. And where, where can people go to find more information about the campaign? At randallwoodson.com. That's R-A-N-D-A-L-L-W-O-O-D-F-I-N. Randallwoodson.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And best of luck. Thanks a lot. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 